We're going to be in the book of Judges this morning, again, as we continue our cycle series. And you're going to be going to page 270 if you're using one of the Bibles there on the chairs in front of us, or Judges chapter 3. So this will be uh, the, uh, the second sermon in Judges chapter 3. So if you're reading along on that reading schedule, and I, and I hope you are, uh, then you're ahead at this point, which should be a great feeling to be ahead. And you'll be ahead for a couple of weeks, and then we'll merge back together. And so, uh, hopefully, if you haven't started that, you've still got plenty of time to catch up because we're only in Chapter 3, and they leave pretty quick. So, I'm hoping you're doing that reading schedule. You're going to get much more out of uh, the messages if you're reading along as well. Plus, as I mentioned last week, I may not cover some everything that's there, and there's some pretty exciting stuff that you might be missing. But today, I'm going to cover everything that's there because this is a fantastic story. This is one of those stories in the Bible that if you've never read your Bible before, you're going to walk away shaking your head going, how did that make it into the Bible? You know, and, and uh, where's my uh, junior high and senior high folks? Are you in here at all? You're probably in the, in the class. I'll hit them up next time. i got some college folks in here. Yes. Okay. I started reading through the Bible when I was in eighth grade on my own. I, I got into a Bible study and got on a reading plan. And I can remember reading stories like the one we're going to look at today going, I have no clue. That this was in the Bible. You know, I mean, you, you get this picture of what the Bible contains and, and what it is, and usually we're thinking a list of rules and a very dry book, or for whatever reason we've gotten that, uh, that, uh, that opinion, probably because maybe we had boring pastors along the way or boring Sunday school teachers, and they weren't excited about the Bible, so we weren't excited about the Bible. But this is one of those days. So, before we jump in, let me ask you this. How many of you are left-handed? Good, good, good. Okay, just a few. All right. How many of you are right-handed? Yeah, yeah, good. And I like how most of you who are left-handed, you raised your left hand. And those of you who are right-handed, you raised your right hand. Of course, I was doing the opposite because I was trying to mirror you. All right. Did you know uh, left-handed people, there's, they, they say there's only about 10% of the world is left-handed. It's a very, very small percentage. And you can find some really interesting readings on left-handed people. And you can find some pretty famous people who were left-handed. Of course, you can find some pretty sinister people who were left-handed. But let me just throw on a few of the famous left-handers that, that maybe those uh, three or four that raise your hand in here can identify with. Barack Obama is a left-handed. And yes, I started with Barack Obama. All right? Uh, Bill Clinton was also left-handed. Okay? Uh, but also George H.W. Bush. Let's, let's get it there. And Gerald Ford. Okay? So four out of the last seven presidents were left-handed. Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber was, is left-handed. Okay? Uh, Oprah Winfrey is left-handed. Oh, uh, Angelina Jolie, left-handed. I mean, you could just go through and, and, you know, pick the one that you like the most, and then you get to claim your, your fame and say, look, I'm left-handed just like Oprah or wh- whoever you decide to uh, identify with. They, they say as they study left-handed people uh, that, that sometimes left-handed people might have an advantage in being wealthier. But then they also said that sometimes left-handed people are more susceptible to psychosis and mental disorders. Okay, stop looking at your left-handed neighbor. You know, we're not making an indictment on them. Uh, left-handed people, you know, there's rumors that left-handed people are more creative, but a lot of the articles I read kind of debunked them, so that's not necessarily the case. But left-handed people certainly do have an advantage in sports. Right? So you think about the left-handed pitcher in baseball. Most, most batters are not used to going up against the left-handed pitcher. And so that throws them off. You think about boxing, right? The more traditional stance for a boxer, if you're right-handed, is to lead with your left side, right? And so you, you jab with your left, and then you can cross with your strong arm, your right, and then follow with the left hook. So when you when you box southpaw, when you fight southpaw, you, you lead with the 
right side, which for a left-hander is the weak side, which gets the strong arm back here. And a boxer who's used to going up against mostly righties, they're not used to seeing that strong left cross come up. Come across, and they're not used to getting the hook from the right side, and so there's advantages to the left-handed person uh, in, in the sports arena. And I can go on, and there's a lot of fun details, and, and there's a lot of, of you know not fun details, like you're more likely to be a murderer if you're left-handed. I, I don't know. Um, so some articles said that Satan is left-handed, and so there's a saying that I heard in seminary, and I, I didn't really think it was true. I thought it was made up, but maybe it is. When talking about the right hand, uh, one of the professors says, uh, "You shake with your right." And you sin with your left. Now, he was helping us to remember the difference between a Hebrew letter that was only a dot made the difference on what side the dot was. But then I started thinking, okay, well, in the Bible, the right hand is always the side of strength, right? The, the Bible uplifts the right hand. And when you're blessing someone in the Bible, you bless them with the right hand. And so I can see where that tradition, that mindset kind of came up over the years. I said, well, if the Bible is it. Uh, upholds the right hand and God's right hand is the one that's going to save us. There must be something sinister about the left hand. But here's what's true about left hand. They're unique. A lot of times you don't see them coming. Uh, maybe maybe sometimes they're viewed as inadequate. We live in a world that's designed for right-handed people. You try to get a pair of scissors, the average pair of scissors, and you're trying to cut it with your left hand, but the, 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 the holes in the scissors aren't designed for you if you're left-handed. You sit at a table next to someone, and they're right-handed, and you're on their right side, you're going to annoy them to death as you eat with your left hand because you're invading their space. Not that they're invading your space. You're the oddball out, right? You're unique, right? I'm not saying you're odd if you're lefty, you go three or four that raise your hand. But this world is designed for right-handed people. I've been told that I started out as a left-hander. But as many of you uh, probably have experienced, there was a time in, the, in society where right-handed people, uh, well, well, people just assumed right-handed is more dominant. So if they saw a kid who was starting to use their left hand, they'd quickly correct that so they could use their right hand. And so my, my, my mom explains to me that perhaps my handwriting would be much better had I actually been allowed to be left-handed. And so that's my excuse. If you ever get a handwritten note from me, it's not my fault. So uniqueness, though, you, you don't see it coming. Maybe you see them as inadequate. And this is a story this morning that is, is about the unexpected. It, it's about how God works in unexpected ways. And you and I, we would love for God to just work the way we want to work. We would love for Him to just answer prayers the way we think He should answer them, the way those prayers need to come to us. We expect God to work certain ways, but God oftentimes does not work the way we expect Him. And I want you to see this morning why you and I should be glad that God works in unexpected ways. So if you're at Judges 3, we're going to start in, in uh, verse 12. Judges chapter 3, verse 12. And uh, what I'm going to do this morning, because we've got a few verses, I'm going to break it up, so we're going to Read the first few, then we're going to stop and talk about them, and then we'll read the rest of the story and unpack that as we go. So page 270, if you're using the Bible there in front of you. And uh, here we go. We're going to start with a review, though. Last week, we started talking about the cycles that you see in Judges, and you will see this repeatedly now throughout the rest of the book. And, and here it is. Israel rebels. They do not obey the Lord in the land. They rebel, which leads to God having to do, uh, pay them restitution. In other words, give them what they've earned. They, they, usually what that is is God raises up their enemies, and their enemies come and overtake them, or they come and raise the crops. And, and at some point throughout the process, however many years that, that Israel is being oppressed, at some point they can't stand it any longer like a child who's been caught doing wrong, but not, not who's sorry for doing wrong, who's just sorry he got caught. They cry out for help. Now, I talked about last week what God requires of us is repentance. 
which is far more than just crying out for help because we got caught. But when we repent, then God responds and He brings revival. He brings restoration. And so we're going to continue to see that, that cycle unfold. So let's jump into our story, though. And here's what we're going to start with first. Our disobedience, it's expected. Now, it's not excused, but it's expected. And here we go. The Israelites, verse 12, again, did evil in the Lord's sight. Again. Right? You're going to start to get tired of that phrase as you read through the book of Judges. And they did evil again. And then they did evil again in the Lord's sight. You would think that they would get it. But you would think that we would get it, too. Right? So before we go and start judging the Israelites, because they just aren't getting it. And we keep seeing this phrase at the beginning of every episode in Judges. The Israelites, again, did evil in the sight of the Lord. We can't lose sight how easily we can get enslaved to sin. It, it, it's just so easy for us to be enslaved to sin. You know, we were designed to worship. And if we're not worshiping the God who designed us to worship Him, we will worship something or someone. We're no different than the Israelites in our, in our heart's desires. We wander. We, we go after and we chase idols. And so the Israelites, they're doing it again. You might remember last week, Othniel, the judge, had delivered them and, and they had left, but then Othniel died. And it happens again and again. Because salvation and permanent deliverance is not found in, in a human hero. So Israel did evil again in the Lord's sight. And so the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because they had done evil in the Lord's sight. Last week we talked about how this is not a passive thing God is doing. This is not God saying, well, you, you're sinning, you're choosing to sin, I'm going to go ahead and let you experience the consequences. That is happening, but the scriptures are describing God as actively involved here. God is acting in His justice. He is giving the Israelites over. He is raising up their enemies so that the enemy overcomes them. He is the one driving that. And you and I, I mentioned last week, that raises some tension for us. But one of the goals I have as we go through the book of Judges is that we will gain a proper view of who God is. And that part of that is understanding that God is just, which means He has to act against sin. Cannot leave sin unjudged, unpunished. And so what you're seeing in the book of Judges is God actively acting to judge and punish His people for sin. Now you and I don't receive that today if we're in Christ. But it's not because God is not actively judging sin. It's because He already actively judged it. He put all of His wrath on Christ. And so you and I, the, the cycle there where God brings people to, to, uh, to judge His people for their sin, you and I don't see that because God's judgment has been put on Christ. But you and I do see our consequences for sin. And so we can identify with the cycle in that way. And so, so the, the Lord gave them... Uh, King Eglon control over Israel because they've done evil in the sight of the Lord. And here's the other thing that you're going to keep seeing. Evil is determined by the Lord's character. Not you and I. Not the people. You see, if it was left to you and I to decide what's good and what's evil, you and I would all be on different pages and we would all have different standards by which we set that. But the scripture makes clear the standard for what determines what is evil, what is sin, is the character of the Lord. They did evil in the sight of God. As much as you and I would want to justify ourselves along the way, oh, I'm not as bad as someone else is doing, or 
you know, this, this, this little area of my life that, I, that I'm choosing to indulge in, it's not going to impact anyone else, or no one's really going to see it, and I can control it when I'm around other people. You and I don't get to decide what's evil. Evil is determined by what's done in opposition to the character of the Lord. And the other thing I'd say about this before you move on is remember, for God, sort of like it is for you, but imperfectly for you and me, for God, His anger is tied to His love. His anger is tied to His love. God is choosing to involve Himself in His people's lives and and to, to judge them and punish them for His sin so that they would not remain enslaved to that sin. Because were it not for God to raise up their enemies and then go into captivity, it's likely they would have never known how deeply enslaved to sin they are. And that's how it is with God as He loves you and I, those who trust in Christ and who are called His children. The Scripture tells us that God disciplines those who love. If He didn't love us, He would not discipline us. He would let us chase the things that He knows are evil. But because He loves us, he will not leave us to chase those things without exercising his discipline. And you and I, our temptation is to see God's discipline as, as his wrath towards us or as, his, as um, God trying to squash our joy or our happiness. But instead, we need to change our perspective. And if you're a child of God, if you're part of God's family, that is God's love for you. And thank God that he loves me and he loves you so much that he'll let us get caught in our sin. Because he knows you and me getting caught in our sin is a lot better than you and me going and chasing that and becoming enslaved to that. So the Lord raises up King Eglon. Eglon, verse 13, formed alliances with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. He came and defeated Israel, and they seized the city of Beit Palm trees. Likely that's Jericho. Okay, so the, the Ammonites and the Amalekites. If you remember back in chapters 1 and 2, God sent Israel into the land. He said, you need to wipe everyone out. Don't leave anyone in there. Don't make any kind of special relationship or promises with these people. Don't marry their daughters. Don't give your daughters to their sons. He says, drive them all out, lest you follow after their gods. And you remember, as you went through chapter 1, you'll see that eventually lots of the tribes of Israel were not driving out the people. They, they, they came up against an obstacle. They had too many chariots to fight against, or they were up in the hills, and they couldn't fight in the hills, or, or whatever the case. Or they thought it was a better idea to just, let's get some forced labor here. Let's get some people working for us. We've been enslaved for so many years. Let's enslave them, and it'll make our burden light. These are some of the people that should have been driven out decades before. They, they should have been driven out of the land, not left, but yet they, they stayed. They were allowed to stay, and now God is using them and is raising them up to come and judge his, his people who are in sin. God's justice is justified. When God acts in his justice, it's always justified. But here's the thing about this. When you and I, when we choose to sin, when we enslave ourselves to idols, we may not see the consequences right away. We may even we may even be deceived and think we're getting away with it. You know, we're so slick, we're so smooth, we know how to hide, we know how to cover it up. We we may think that it's not affecting anyone. But one day, it will, it does, catch up with us. God in his grace and in his mercy allows us to experience the consequences of our sin. 
It's up to you and I to determine how do we view this. Are we going to view it as a scripture shows us to view it, that that's God's love? Or are we going to view that as he's just a tyrant trying to steal my joy, my happiness? It will catch you. It will catch you. Uh, Proverbs 10.9 says that he who walks with integrity walks securely. What a wonderful way it is to walk when you know you're living your life in integrity. You're not going to be looking behind your shoulders someone's going to catch me, someone, you know, my being found out. He who walks with integrity walks securely. But he who perverts his way will be found out. Verse 14, the Israelites were subject to King Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Do you remember how long the, the last uh, enslavement was, the last captivity, back at the end of a... Uh, and we've probably been around chapter uh, 3, verse 7. Eight years. Yep. It's getting worse. It's getting longer. The, the, the more that Israel continues in their sin, the more intense their captivity and their judgment is, the longer it is. You may remember this. When it comes to sin, the longer it sits, the stronger it gets. When you and I let sin fester, when you and I uh, continue to to go down a path of being enslaved to sin or chasing after idols. And an idol, by the way, doesn't have to be a statue. We're going to talk more about idols in a bit. But an idol is anything we submit our life to, that we allow to control us, the way we live, the way we think, the way we talk, in hopes that if we do what it says, we get what we want. And so we submit ourselves and are controlled by something in hopes that we'll get what we want. But if you've ever been addicted to anything and then you got free of that addiction, but then you fell back into that addiction, you know the fall is even harder than it was before. And the depth to which you go is usually progressively worse, progressively lower. And that's what it's like for Israel in captivity. Our, our disobedience is expected. It's expected because of who we are. It's expected because... Sin has impacted all of us. It's infected all of us. It, it's no surprise that we mess up, that we chase things other than God. And if you've been around uh, the Bible for any uh, period of time, you start to get that real quick, that you understand there's a problem with people. And even if you've never read your Bible, you understand that people are not as good as they could and should be. And that there's things wrong with the world. You, you and I, it's expected that we don't get it right, but it's never excuse. It's never excuse. But here's the beauty as we unfold the rest of our story. God's deliverance is unexpected. It's expected that you and I, we're going to disobey, we're going to be disobedient. That's just, that infects us. It's not excuse, but we're, we shouldn't be surprised if that happens. But this should surprise us. God's deliverance is unexpected. So let's take a look. First off, we're going to see as we go on that God's deliverance, it, it's just unexpected that He would even deliver to begin with. It, it's unexpected that God would continue to deliver. So look at me at verse 15. When the Israelites cried out for help to the Lord, so remember your cycle here, they rebelled, God brings restitution for their sins, then they repent or they cry out. And again, we still don't have Israel here repenting. This is still the same word that's been used the last couple weeks, a word for crying out. Because the burden is too heavy, not a word for repentance. They're sorry they got caught. They're not sorry they sinned. The Lord raised up a deliverer. Now, that word deliverer, we've not talked about that over the last few weeks. So I just want to bring something to you here this morning about that. The word deliverer there, listen, Mashiach. Hear it? Mashiach. 
the word Messiah. As God talks about these judges, and next week is the, is the message where we're going to actually talk more about the judge. But as God raises up these judges, He raises them up as deliverers, as Messiah. But they're not permanent. They're not perfect. They don't get the job done and keep it done. Which is why the book of Judges remind us, or repeatedly reminds us that we cannot find salvation, we cannot find deliverance in any person, but only in the one who is the permanent deliverer, the permanent Messiah. The book of Judges constantly points us to Christ, constantly points us to Jesus. So God raises up a deliverer, and his name was Ehud, son of Zerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Now you know why I started out with left-handed. Now, from here forward in the, in the scriptures, or in, the, in this story, the details are important. You know the saying, the devil's in the details? Well, let's flip that. Deliverance is in the details. Clue into the details this morning, because this is what makes this story great. He's left-handed. Right away as you're reading that, if, you, if you're in, in, in the, the culture where, where this is being written and you're in that Israelite culture, you're reading and you read, he's a left-hander. Why? Because how many percent of the world is left-handers? Roughly 10%. Roughly 10%. And that's been consistent, uh, you know, throughout the years as far as they can tell, as far as they can ascertain. Left-handers, more so now, uh, then than it is now, were viewed as inadequate. Now, we don't know. There's, there's, there's some debate as to what this meant. Because literally what's, what's being said is he's unable to use his right hand. Now, so some, some have, have read that and they think, well, he had a disability, a deformity. His hand maybe was withered, and so he was unable to use his left hand. And others say, no, that's not what it means, and, and instead it just means he's left-handed. And others say, well, no, he's ambidextrous. And here's what you find out later on in Judges. There's another group of Benjamites, uh, an elite group of warriors who were specially trained to do battle with their left hand because it gave them the advantage. But the left-handers were unexpected. So if you go to battle and you've been trained to fight up against another right-hander, you've got a left-hander coming with his sword, you're not going to expect that. The, the deliverance is in the details. Left-hander. You're thinking, he can't get the job done. He's not, he's, not, he's not a mighty warrior. It's the mighty warrior's right hand that delivers people. But God raises up, unexpectedly, a lefty. They go on. The Israelites sent him to King Eglon of Moab with their tribute payment. Ehud himself uh, made himself a sword. It had two edges and was 18 inches long. Now, a two-edged sword was not a common thing. You didn't typically have a two-edged sword. He's making a very unique sword here. And it's a very specific length. Uh, the, the length, is, it says here, is with about 18 inches long. So think about elbow to the tip of your middle finger or so, somewhere around there, maybe a little shorter than that. He's designing himself a concealed weapon. He's designing a weapon that he can conceal. He's not going open carry this time. He's going to conceal this. All right? So he makes himself a double-edged sword. That's going to come into play later. And had two edges and was 18 inches long. He strapped it under his coat on his right unexpected, because if, if you were a warrior and you were right-handed, you didn't draw your sword from your right. Look how awkward that would be. You'd, you'd have a kind of a comedy moment trying to get it out of your sheet. You drew it from your left side. But he 
is putting it under his cloak and seal on his right thigh because he both blessed you. And he's going to plan to pull that from his breath. Now, to this day, I haven't found anybody who's explained this detail that I like to know. If it's under his cloak, and their cloaks were typically down here, doesn't that mean he's going to have to lift up his cloak and then pull the sword? And if I'm anybody on the other end of that sword, I think I've got time. So then I'm thinking, well, this must be like a tactical sheet, right? So the sword is hanging upside down. It's one of those things where he's going to just reach under there and pull it down. But even that still, I don't get it. So I haven't figured that out. But here's the key. It's a surprise. Because when he would get frisked, when he would go to this king, and the king's guys are going to frisk him down or look at him, they're looking at the right side. Is he carrying a weapon? And they're not looking to see if there's anything on his left. Because they weren't trained to to do that. He gives himself the advantage. Let's keep going. You know, I tell you the details. This is one of those spots when, I, as a young teenage boy, I'm leaving it and I'm going, Really? Really? Okay. And it gets better. Verse 17 He brought the tribute payment to King Eglon of Moab. Sentence could end there. It could. But the Bible author decides he needs to tell us a little bit more. And the details are important. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I mean, I'm reading this as a teenage boy and I'm going, Really? The Bible doesn't oftentimes give descriptions of people physically, but when it does, it's usually pretty important. A lot of times it, it'll say, um, Leah, Leah had dim eyes. You know, Jacob and, and, and Rachel and Leah, that's for Leah, she had dim eyes. In, in other words, she was not good looking. But Rachel, she was beautiful and cool. You know what that is. Okay? And, and when it talks about even our Savior in Isaiah, it says he, he wasn't stately to look at. He wasn't anybody who was impressive. David, David, he was running. Oh, my God. Eglon was a very fat man. Now, I don't know why, but, but, but when I read Eglon as a fat man, I, I think this. All right. He brought the tribute. Eglon was a very fat man. And contrary, I am, I am not a Star Wars um, geek, by the way. I, I, I've watched all of them once, maybe. After Ehud, verse 18, brought the tribute payment, he dismissed the people who had carried it. So pay attention. The, the story's unfolding. So Ehud comes. He brings the tribute. He's got these people with him. They come into the king's chambers, and they're bringing this, this tribute to the king who's ruling over the people. And now, after he's brought the tribute, it says Ehud dismissed the people who had carried it. Okay, you guys, were done. You can go home. And they all start to turn back. Verse 19. But he, Ehud, then he went back once he reached the carved images at Gilgal. He said to Eglon, so he, he comes back, he reaches a certain point, and he turns back, and, and somehow he gets an audience again with the king. Now, he's by himself at this point, and, and here's how he gets that audience. One again, no weapon is visible, right? He, you can't see a weapon. He says, I have a secret message for you from God. Okay, through the king, I mean, a secret. No one else is going to get to know this. And that puts you in a position of, of elevation. I, I have a secret message for you, O king. Eglon says this, then, be quiet, all his sentence left. So he clears the room. Hey, hush, 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 there's a secret message. Everybody out. He clears the room, so all his bodyguards are gone. Anyone who can defend him now, out of the room. Why? Because his king is so intent on hearing the secret message that Elud has. Because only he alone gets to hear this message. We go on. Verse 10. When Ehud approached him, he was sitting in his well-ventilated upper room, all by himself. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. 
when Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, details, he's not expecting this, pulled the sword from his right thigh, and then drove it into the king's belly. Okay, details. The handle went in after the blade, and the fat closed around the blade. And for the life of me, I tried to figure out a good, a good fun visual for this, but I couldn't think of one, and I didn't want to concoct anything. And so the fat closes around the blade of the handle, and for Ehud did not pull the sword out. So this wasn't like a jab, pull, and keep my sword. This was a boom, it's all the way in, probably no hilt. They're blocking because the whole dagger just went straight in. Fat closes all the way around it. Ehud pulls his hand out, leaves the dagger. For Ehud did not pull the sword out of his belly. All right. I put that bracket there. How many of you are reading um, NIV? Okay. If I'm correct, the NIV 84 might have this, and the NIV 2011 does not, or it flipped that. How many of you are reading New Living Translation? Definitely has it, okay? Anybody reading ESV or King, New King James, King James? Yeah, okay. It's going to have this. All right. And the king's bowels emptied. Now, the translation I've got up here, the Net Bible, chooses not to put that in there because there's a, there is some question as to what the phrase means. And it means it went out the back. That's all it means. And so this question is, what went out the back? And so this translation, the Net Bible, chooses to to make the assumption that the sword, the dagger, went out the back. But most every other translation has decided that what's going on, and you'll see because of the details, is that as that stabbed the guy in the, in the belly, it hit the bowels, and as he fell to the floor, his bowels fell out. This is key. This is key. 23. As Ehud went out into the vestibule, he closed the doors of the upper room behind him and he locked them. So Ehud now, the king's on the floor. He's got to make his escape. So he leaves. He locks the doors. The king is, by the way, remember he's by himself. He's dismissed everyone. He's locked the doors now. Verse 24. When Ehud had left, Eglon's servants came and saw the locked doors of the upper room. Okay, that's odd. The king's locked his doors. Well, what are they going to assume? They said he must be relieving himself in the well-ventilated inner room. Now, yes, just a locked door might lead you to that conclusion, but think back to that phrase, and his bowels fell out. Put yourself in the story for a moment. What are you going to smell? Okay? Well-ventilated room or not, it's likely that what's happening is they're catching a whiff, and they're saying, oh, he's going to the bathroom. Let's give him some space. Details. Details. We go on. First 20 bucks. They waited so long, they were embarrassed. Okay? So they, they, but they still, he still did not open the doors of the upper room. So finally they said, man, this is, this is not good. He probably fell in. All right? And, and so they said, finally they took the key and opened the doors. Right before their eyes was their master, sprawled out dead on the floor. Now, Ehud had escaped while they were delaying, and when he passed the car of images, he escaped to, to Sarah. So Ehud makes an escape. So all this while, while the king's attendants are standing outside going, like, how long is appropriate before we knock on the door and say, are you okay? Or, or how long is appropriate before we bust it in and, and see what's going on? All that time, Ehud was able to make his escape. Details. Deliverance is in the details. And, and if you've never read your Bible and you're not reading this, this plan, you're missing this kind of stuff. Because this kind of stuff is buried in there where you're going, wow. Because, you know, God didn't have to put that in there. He could have told the story without it. But the details, the fact that Eglon is fat, 
plays into the story because the fat closes over him. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the fact that, that Ehud, uh, um, Ehud was left-handed makes a, a big difference in the story because he's unexpected when he draws that dagger from his right side. Right? All of these details play into the way that God is bringing about deliverance for his people. And it's all unexpected. And, and you and I would not see it coming because you and I would be looking for certain things. We'd be, we'd be like the people in, in, the, in the story. We'd be looking for a dagger on the left side. We'd be looking for a bulge under the under the, the tunic on the left side if he was concealing because most people are right-handed. We'd make assumptions. And we would expect that if someone's going to make an attempt on the king's life, he's going to do it that way, the way we would understand it. Most of us have expectations of how God is supposed to act. And we're looking for him to act in that way. All the while, God is not, uh, uh, he doesn't give in to our expectations. He's not contained by them. Instead, he's actively acting and working all around us, but you and I are missing it. Because we're looking for it in the way we think it should be. We go on. From verse 27, when he reached Sarah, he blew a trumpet in the Ephraimite hill country. The Israelites went down with him from the hill country with Ehud in the lead. He said to them, follow me, for the Lord is about to defeat your enemies, the Moabites. They followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan River opposite Moab, and did not let anyone cross. That day, they killed about 10,000 Moabites. All strong, capable warriors. Not one escape. Now let me ask you, why had that not happened in the last 18 years? If it was so easy for them now to overcome the Moabites, why had it not happened? Because revival does not come unless the Lord brings it. We cannot manufacture it. And as long as they were enslaved to their sin, not crying out, not repentant, revival was not coming. But now, now, in God's timing, all of a sudden, it's like 10,000 in a day, easy. All of them strong men, their best warriors, children. Israel, verse 30, humiliated Moab that day, and the land had rest for 80 years. That's a long time to be at rest. To not have the to have crops in season, and I thought the whole other generation maybe too. God's deliverance, unexpected. It's unexpected that he would even consider delivering people like you and me, people like the Israelites who are constantly just sinning and, and going back and chasing after idols. But then when he does deliver, it's unexpected how he does that. And you know the same is true today. God's deliverance for his people is unexpected. You see, uh, God has provided deliverance for his people. But here's the thing. As we read through this story, we are still enslaved to sin. We are people who still enslave ourselves to sin. If you're a Christian, you think, no, I can't be enslaved to sin. You can be enslaved to sin. And the moment that you think, I cannot be enslaved, is the moment you have lost. Israel had a special unique relationship with God, and yet they still were capable of being enslaved to sin. They worshipped and chased after idols, because in their desperation, they had moved into this new land, and they weren't, they weren't sure that they could completely trust God. It's not that they completely threw God away. It's that they added other things to God. You see, God, God's the one who delivered them from Egypt. God's the one who brought them into this land. God's the one who said, I'm going to bring you rain. I'm going to bring you crops. I'm going to keep you at peace with your enemies. But they move into this land and they start learning about these other folks that have lived here for so many generations and how they've survived here in the land. And about their God that they've worshipped. The one, Baal, who provides the rain in season and out. And they heard this story and they heard how it's been so consistent for these people. And it's not that they push God aside and say, we don't want to worship anymore. It's that 
God, we don't know we can trust you completely, so we're going to bring down the one side. And they begin chasing after idols. And they're desperation. And you and I are the same way. We can't fully trust God sometimes. We, we don't feel like He's going to come through like we expect. And, and so what we do is we say, God, I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to push away. But I'm not sure I can fully depend upon you. So I'm going to then bring these other things alongside my worship of you. And we worship idols. We submit our lives to give it control to whatever it is we're submitting to. And as we give control to those things and we perform for them and we live our lives according to what they say and dictate, we're hoping that if I do this, I'm going to get what I'm chasing after. You and I can be enslaved to idols. I can start throwing some out, kids. Granted, we start shaping our lives around them, their schedules, their lives, their wants, their their, their expectations, and we start performing for them, hoping that hopefully they're going to keep us as their friend when they do it. Hoping we'll be that, that grandparent. But for Christians, there's, a, there's, there's, there's another way that we oftentimes fall into idolatry and we don't even know it. It's three people. We, we start to worship a place. A place. A building. A location that was particularly meaningful to us at a certain time in our life. We start to worship that. I was part of a church plant for 10 years, and, and one of the things that this church plant did was we never had a permanent building. We were always mobile. We started out, uh, when I joined, they were, they were in a, 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 an elementary school cafeteria, and the church continued to grow. And it was really, really neat, very sweet time. And then they moved from there because, one, the lease went up uh, higher, and then, two, we needed more room, so we went to a high school auditorium. And people left. And, and those who left and pulled some of the reasons why they left was because they felt like we were leaving the Holy Spirit back at Frost Elementary and it weren't taking him to Terry's high school. Why? Because we were worshiping him. This is where God moved in my life. This is where I was. And look, that's, that's significant. And those experiences are key and they're important. But the moment we start limiting God to He can only work here. He can only work in this place. He can only work in these walls. We're worshiping a place of idols. We also worship the past. Second thing, the past. This is when God delivered me. This is how things were going. This is the, the, the types of things I was involved in. And so, in order to continue going, in order to continue to be godly, these things have to be these things. People don't like things. And as Christians, we oftentimes we worship the past. That's why a lot of times uh, the, the church. People walk in and have never stepped foot in a church in general. And they're going, oh, you guys are stuck in seventies and eight. Why didn't you catch up? And sometimes that might be things as simple as technology. And, and people are going, why aren't you using that? And church people, sometimes they, they've gotten, because they're stuck in pastor, because those things are never together. You know, and they get this mindset that God can't work through those things. We, we worship the past. The last one is it, programming. So place, past, programming. This is the program I got safely. This is the program I grew in. This is the program that, that saw, saw a great amount of growth. And so we keep those programs around, but programs were never meant to be holistic. Programs were never meant to be uh, the way, the, the only way that God works. God chooses to work through programs by the truth. But programs do often and must sometimes change in order to adapt to the people you're trying to reach relationships with. But Christians, we, we oftentimes will fall into our spirit programs. And so we keep programs around it that, that they were effective for us. They were maybe effective for our kids, and, but they're no longer doing the same thing. We're, we're all 
guilty of worshiping idols. And I could go and I could throw out money and I could throw out success and things. But let's really get honest about what we really worship. Those things are probably good. But these other ones we don't God has still sent a deliverer. So we rebel. We still worship idols. God still has raised up a deliverer. And that deliverer is unexpected. As the scripture talks about Jesus, no one saw him coming. They knew God was going to raise someone up, but they didn't know it was going to be him. And, and when Jesus raised, they didn't think that he was adequate to save, to deliver. I mean, after all, who, who is expecting to be saved from your oppressors when the guy that you're trusting in to save you is killed on a cross by your oppressors? They didn't see him coming. He was unexpected, the way that God was going to deliver. And some even wrote him off and said, he's inadequate. And people, we do it today. We, we, we are in need of deliverance. Some of you are in need of deliverance today. You, you, need, you need life given to you, and you need to trust in Christ. But you've heard that before in your life. I don't need deliverance. And if I do need deliverance, I will bring it about. Or you're looking for deliverance in, in, in some other person. And so you put all your hope behind Donald Trump, or all your hope behind Hillary Clinton, or all your hope behind Gary Johnson, or you're really hoping that a third person, just another person just steps in that you can get behind, because, man, if they just come, they're going to save us. But they're not. They're not. But you, you, you've given yourself and you've let your life be controlled by some of that, hoping that you get what you want. And it doesn't matter if your candidate wins or not, you're not going to get what you want. In the next four years, you're still going to want to complain about the president. Because deliverance is never meant to come to replacement like a president. Deliverance is only ever meant to come through the one who can make it for And he is a ruler and a political leader, yes, the king, Jesus. He's also a savior, and he's a warrior. And he is the one that God has raised up as a deliverer. And you probably didn't see coming, and you probably, maybe some of you here this morning, you don't want to see him coming, and you think he's inadequate, but this is who God has raised up. And this one who died on the cross, who you think is inadequate, is the only one who has ever overcome death. And is the only one who, when we trust in him, can give us the same power to overcome death, death being the greatest, the greatest enemy you and I have. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. God has raised up a deliverer. But if you and I continue to look where we expect it, we're not going to see it. And as some of you this morning, you've trusted in Christ. You know that's God's will, but you're still maybe going to stay the same. And you're wondering, when am I going to get out of this? When am I going to, to, to know freedom from this addiction? And God, contrary to maybe what you think, God wants you to know that freedom. And God wants you to be delivered from that. God wants you to no longer be enslaved to sin. But remember the cycle. When are you going to repent? When are you going to step away from it and say, God, I, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't continue down this path. I, I know it's wrong and I need your help to turn away from it. Do that. And watch God start the path. It may not be instant. Don't, don't hear me saying you'll be free of your addiction like that. It may or may not be that way. But trust God. Stop trusting in everything else. Trust in Him. And watch. Watch how He unexpectedly Father, you're so good to us. We don't deserve it. Uh, we, are, we are people who uh, constantly will chase after other things. All the while, you are the one who can provide all that we need. You are the one who, 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 can, who can deeply satisfy all of our needs. You are the one, only one worthy of worship. And yet, God, we'll give our worship to others. The things, the people, the places, the programs, the past, the, the money, the whatever. 
all because it's not that we, we don't completely want to get rid of you, God, but we're not sure we can trust you completely. Forgive us for being so arrogant. God, some of us need to repent of that. Others, God, this morning, maybe they need life this morning, and, and they've never trusted in Christ, and they didn't see Him coming, but maybe now this morning you've opened their eyes so that they can see that's how kind of it is. Unexpected, but wow, this is amazing grace. God, would you open their eyes and show them their need for, for the Savior that you provided them, that they would trust in Christ. His death on the cross for us and His resurrection from the dead, that they would be known Father, help us all as we continually give ourselves and serve ourselves to you. Open our eyes, God, your mercy just for us, so that we would get off that path and know that you love and care. Know that you love us. We thank you, Lord, for our Savior and Christ. Amen. So I hope this morning, like I said, I know it takes a lot to get here. I hope this morning you've gotten maybe what you weren't expecting. You're able to stand in God is in the deliverance business, and He uses lessons. So don't be surprised when God makes His deliverance known to you in an unexpected way. And then rejoice in it. And go live differently because of it. And do that in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen.